Please take out your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 4, please. Revelation chapter 4. As you turn there, let me just say again how good it is to, to see all of you. We uh, had a good trip out to Florida. Uh, as many of you may have seen the pictures, it was an exhausting, it don't really feel like a vacation. It was 12 hours a day at four different parks, but it was, it was good. And uh, we're, but it's nothing like being home, glad to be home. And um, certainly, certainly missed all of you last, last Sunday. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our studies in Revelation. Brother Mitch just wrapped up recently uh, several weeks of study on the seven churches of Asia, and he's did a wonderful job with that. He's an excellent teaching on that, and I really appreciate that. I know you do as well. Really got a lot out of that. Remember, in that section, that's Revelation 2 through 3, we find Jesus personally addressing uh, at least seven local congregations. They're called by name in the text. He wanted them to know that he knew where they were, he knew what they were going through, and that he was among them. Remember, he was walking among the churches. And he continues to do that today with his churches. Walks among the churches. His presence is always with his people. Now, since we have a couple of classes uh, to get through Revelation 4 and 5, which we're going to be doing for the next few, few classes, uh, I want to spend a few moments today bringing us up to speed and just trying to make sure we're always reminded. This is important. It's, this is very important. We need to always be reminded of the overall message of Revelation. As we go through this book, we don't want to fall into the trap that a lot of folks do when they, when they study this book, and that is they miss the forest for the trees. They get so bogged down trying to break down every part of every verse that they miss the overall message. And, and, and Brother Mitch and I want to make sure that, that we help you avoid, avoid that trap. And so to bring us up to speed, let's just go through some of these things again. Chapter 1, remember chapter 1, critical chapter, the entire context, the entire context of the book is set in chapter 1. God right away knows, he has a feeling, or he just knows because he's God, that we're going to mess up this book, and so he gives us a lot of road signs, guideposts to help us understand it properly. The date of the book, the date we take, is late first century. Maybe between 94 and 96 AD, there are some brethren who take more of an early date, the pre-70 AD date. Uh, for me personally, uh, and, I, and, and Mitch as well, uh, we take the late first century date uh, during the time of the Roman emperor Domitian. The style of the book is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, signs and symbols. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Purpose of the book, the purpose of this book, why it was originally written in the first century, was to comfort these first century Christians who were living during a time of persecution, right? They were being persecuted by an empire that was trying to stomp out the church, was trying to destroy Christianity. This was a very tough time for the church. The question is, would the church endure? Would the church be able to get through this? Would the church be able to press on and continue on as the Lord intended. If you're a Christian living during this time and you're going through the things they went through, every day you wake up, you, you're thinking, no, it won't endure. There's no way we can win this battle going against the strongest empire in the history of the world. The audience of the book 
as Brother Mitch led us in, in in the studies of the seven churches of Asia. That was the original audience. Revelation 1 and verse 11. This is something we, Mitch led us in for a few weeks, the pattern that repeats itself in the book. And you probably were able to see that pattern very clearly, right? In any interpretation of the book that makes the message meaningless to these Christians is wrong. So let's just start there or stop there for just a second. We're going to continue to try to find good application from this as we go through this. But as we try to find good application, we want to make sure that we don't put the cart before the horse. We want to make sure that we do our best to get the right interpretation of the book. Then the application will be more powerful to us. And so for us to get the right application, we got to first make sure that how we, any way we interpret this book, we got to make it, we got to make it meaningful first to the original audience because they were going through something that we're just not going through. Now, don't get me wrong, it ain't good for us right now. It's not good. But it's still not even close to what they were going through. Not yet, at least. Not yet. And so we want to remember that. In chapters 2 through 3, we find a short personal message to each church. We study that. Jesus seems to follow the same outline as he speaks to each church. He identifies the church. We saw that every time, didn't we? We didn't have to guess which churches he was talking to. We knew very clearly. The church is identified. Jesus always identifies himself in some way. Now, he may not just say Jesus. He only does that one time, I believe. He says it's Jesus. But there are other descriptions he gives to let us know that it's still him talking, right? So he identifies the church. He identifies himself as a speaker. He talks about good things the church is doing. He rebukes the church for some bad things. Now, there were two churches that he did not rebuke. Mitch, we're going to see if they remember this. The two churches that they, he did not rebuke were, were which churches? Smyrna and Philadelphia, okay? So, but the rest of them, he said some good things about them, with the exception of the last one, which was Laodicea. He rebukes the church, and then he gives counsel for the church. The counsel is usually the same, repent, change, repent of your sins. And then he talks about some promises to come. That seems to be the pattern. Now, going back to the guidepost again, let's just keep these things in mind as we go through this book. We need to especially be mindful of them as we continue on. The name of the book, Revelation, not, not the idea of revealing things that's going to happen when the world ends and when the Lord comes back. That's not what apocalypsis means. The word apocalypsis in the original Greek means what? Lay bare. Lay bare. To disclose, to reveal, to unveil. This, this, that's what the name means. This was going to be a revelation of what according to the first verse of the book? A revelation of what? Revelation 1 and verse 1. Look at it real quick. Revelation 1 and verse 1, this is a revelation of what? Of Jesus. This is going to be a book about Jesus. It's going to tell us something about Jesus. Now, we know what it's going to tell us about Jesus because we know the, we know the story. Most of us do. It's going to tell us about the victory of Jesus, how Jesus is going to win. We know that. But that's something to keep in mind. The content of the book, this is prophetic. These are talking about things that are going to happen in the future. This is, this is considered the prophetic book of the New Testament. A signified book, signs and symbols. Don't read this book like you read 1 Corinthians. We don't read it like we read Ephesians. We don't read it like Romans or Acts or the Gospels. This is a signified book. It's written like a lot of the apocalyptic books of the Old Testament. Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Joel. It's written in signs and symbols. We've got to work a little harder to figure out what's going on. 
And we got to be careful with assuming things that the text doesn't say. We got to be careful with that too. So that's something we just want to remember. The audience of the book, Brother Mitch went through the seven churches of Asia, the background of the book, tribulation, Christians are suffering terribly. We've even seen that in our studies of the seven churches of Asia. Theme, Christ rules. This book is about the rule of Jesus, how no one defeats Jesus, and then especially the time frame, shortly come to pass. The majority of these things talked about in this book are going to take place shortly from the perspective of the original audience. That's something else to remember. Now, where are we going from here? Well, we looked at chapter 1, the road signs. Chapters 2 through 3, we're done there. Now we're going to get to chapter 4 when we see the vision of God, the God the Father. We got the book with the seven seals. Chapter 6, the first six seals are open. Chapter 7 is an interlude. Now, I'll keep repeating this a few times. In this book, you have a series, you have series, series, I don't even know how you say that, series, that's better, of seven, okay? You got the seven seals. You got the seven trumpets. You got the seven bowls of wrath. Usually the sevens, the series of seven, follow the same pattern. The first six, you got the first six, and the seventh is always transitional. The seventh will transition to something else. The seventh seal will, trans, will transition to the seven trumpets. The seven trumpet will transition to the seven bowls of wrath. There's the same pattern found uh, with a series of seven. So just remember that. We'll say more about that as we keep going. So you have an interlude in chapter seven. And we look at this like you're watching a play. That's, it's kind of how a good way to look at apocalyptic genre. And then in chapters 12 down to and 13, we have these, in, these enemies. You've got a bunch of enemies that are going to pop up in the story. You've got the red dragon. You've got the sea beast. You've got the earth beast. You've got the harlot. All these enemies represent things. They represent Satan, and they represent his henchmen, which, are the, which is the Roman Empire, and the corrupt aspects of the Roman Empire. Chapters 14 through 20, you've got the judgment that's going to be brought on the enemies. And so after introducing us to the enemies, from chapters 14 through 20, God, or Jesus, is going, to start, is going to start wiping them out one by one. And he's going to go backwards. He's going to wipe out the harlot, then the, then the earth beast, then the sea beast, and then the red dragon ultimately would be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And so it's hot. Just, just keep these things in mind. And then in chapters 21 through 22, we got the final outcome for God's people, which is the new Jerusalem, us in, in heaven with God. Okay. So let's go to Revelation 4. Let's go to Revelation 4. Let's read the chapter. It's not a long chapter. It's only 11 verses. And I want to challenge you to do something as, as we read this, okay? I want you just to, I want you to challenge yourself to read this like you're reading it for the first time. Try to put yourself there. Try to put yourself with John, okay? Maybe even try to imagine you are John. And, and you're going to see these things that he's, going to, that he's talking about here, okay? Just, just see if you can do that. Revelation 4 and verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis 
in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Now, us coming from Western culture, it's hard to read that without trying to make something of everything there, right? And it's especially hard to read that without trying to literalize everything, right? That's hard because we're not trained that way. We're just not. But remember, signs and symbols. Remember, signify that, that that's in there. That's in chapter one for a reason. This scene we just read about here is typically called the throne scene. Can someone tell me why is this typically called the throne scene? Say it again, Doug. Throne room, throne room it's a throne room of God. That's right. This is the throne of God the Father. God is on his throne. The word throne is used in these two chapters we're going to be studying over the next couple of weeks. Revelation 4 and verse 5. Revelation 4 and 5, I'm sorry. The word throne is used 17 times in these two chapters, Revelation 4 and verse 5. Revelation 4 and 5. Seventeen times the word throne is used. The throne symbolizes, symbolizes, I believe, God's rule as king. It is designed to let us know who has authority, who has all authority. It is to give us assurance, or give especially these Christians assurance that that even though they're going through all these bad things, even though it looks like they're getting beat down and they're going to lose this spiritual war, God's still in control. God's on his throne. God is reigning in heaven. He's still the one in full control of all things. God wanted his people to know that. He wanted John to know that. And let me ask you something. Is this message of God sitting on his throne, being in authority and in charge of all things, is that still a relevant message? Is that still something that we need to be reminded of today? Oh, we need to be reminded of that. And we need to remind ourselves of that constantly. I mean, so often I think we, we get real frustrated, and rightly so, right, rightly so. We get frustrated when we see how pervasive sin is becoming in our society. 
We get frustrated when we just look around and we see things getting worse and worse every single day. How, I mean, this morality continues to change. It's just getting just worse and worse in our society. We get frustrated by that and maybe we lose sleep because of that. Maybe we worry about the kind of future our kids and our grandkids are going to be living in. I get all that, but, but in our frustration, maybe one of the things that can calm us down and, and, and help us get good perspective is to always remember Revelation 4. Always remember that no matter what we see going on, no matter how bad things get, and they're going to get worse before they get better. No matter how bad things get, God's on the throne. God is on the throne. He's still in control. We're not losing. It may look like we're losing in the physical world, but put on your spiritual goggles and recognize that's how God sees things. There's a spiritual war taking place, and we're winning it, and we're going to win it. Because God is always in control. That's one of the things that these early Christians would have taken away from reading Revelation 4. God is on the throne. Because it's easy to forget that, isn't it? It's easy to forget that. Now, before we break down the chapter, let's consider some, some material, some other material that can help us appreciate the background for what's being described in Revelation 4. Just with a raising, raising your hand, please, and I'll, I'll do my best to try to uh, repeat the things you say because I know we got the video going here. Can somebody give me one example, just one example? I got to say that for Don because Don will give me 10 here, so I'm, just, I'm saying one Don. <laughs> Can someone give me one example of other places in the Bible where you find similar language to what you find in Revelation 4? Similar stuff. Does anybody have one? Brother Jonathan and Gary, I saw you. Brother Jonathan said Isaiah 6, and, and I'm guessing you're talking about the, the, the spiritual beings flying around the throne with the wings, saying, holy, holy, holy. Did, did anybody think of Isaiah 6? That's Isaiah 6 all day. There's no doubt about that. That is almost like verbatim. It's, I mean, it's like it's, it's, you can't read that and not think of Isaiah 6. Brother Gary, you have one, sir? I was going to say Isaiah 6, but also Ezekiel. Yes. Ezekiel 1. I thought about Ezekiel 1. Uh, so we got Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. And just so y'all can see this, that's what I put up on the screen there. Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. They didn't see my notes, but that, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And in Ezekiel 1, the book begins with Ezekiel seeing this great vision. And he sees a vision of all these different creatures that have... That have heads of and faces of animals and people. That's the beginning of his ministry right there. This great vision God gives him of these beings with faces of animals and people. And that's clearly in Revelation. We're going to see that. We're going to look at that in Revelation. Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the, the spiritual beings going around the throne of God before God sends him on his mission to preach to, to the people of, of Judah. And the spiritual beings are saying, holy, holy, holy. They're just praising God day and night, forever and ever. And Isaiah says, I have unclean lips. He's humbled by that. He's humbled by that vision. And in Ezekiel's case, when Ezekiel sees these, these, these creatures that God shows him, Ezekiel, he does like John. He falls down on his face. And he has to be told to get back up. 
And that remind you what happened with John when he saw Jesus? The same thing. So I thought of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 6 when I read Revelation 4. I think having some background of what happens with the two prophets in the Old Testament will, will help you in your seeing what John is doing in Revelation 4. Does anybody else have anything? Does anybody, have any, anybody else have anything else besides Ezekiel and, 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 and Isaiah? Anybody? Yes, sir, Brother Don, then Mitch after that. Yes. Just one point about Ezekiel. This scene that Ezekiel sees in chapter 1 repeats itself through the book. There is an incident, and then here's his appearance. It is God taking action continuously. Brother Don said that this the scene of Ezekiel 1 repeats itself throughout the book, and that's absolutely right. Each time, God is... And the way I've always took that done is God always does something dramatic and powerful to catch the prophet's attention, to humble the prophet, to prepare the prophet for the work he's been given. And I think you see that with Ezekiel and with Isaiah. Because remember, after Isaiah saw his vision of the spiritual beings, God says, I need somebody to go preach to my people. And what Isaiah say, we, we sing a song about that. Here am I, saying me. Isn't that, a great, isn't that a great attitude to have? Brother Mitch, you had some, sir. Not exactly You said Micaiah. First Kings that first Kings twenty two, Mitch. Micaiah is an interesting prophet. We don't talk about Micaiah a lot. Uh, we don't even really know what happened to Micaiah. Last time we heard of him, he was locked up in prison because Ahab said, don't let him back. Don't let him get out until I come back. Because he said Ahab wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna live in battle. But you're right, that's another example of a spiritual vision. That's a, that's a great example, 1 Kings 22. That, that's good, Mitch, that's very good. Brother Gary, and then we'll move on. I just wanted to add to this, Ezekiel and Isaiah, they, they see the scene. But I'm really impressed with Ezekiel, how many times God announces a judgment and it says, so that you will know I am God. So even though the others didn't see the vision, they saw things to know that God is real. Yes, yes. And, that's, and that really to me, Brother Gary is talking about how the, the prophets are able, and especially Ezekiel is able to see these things to know about God, God's power, to know God is real, to know that God is also a God of judgment. And that, to me, is what this is really all about. When I, I had a question here I wanted to ask about these, these two chapters, Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. What do they have in common? And the thing I wrote down as I thought about this, at least in, in my judgment, when you look at Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 and really Revelation 4 with it, all of these chapters pro portray God as doing something powerful and dramatic to catch the attention of his messenger to let his messenger know that you're speaking to, to God I'm speaking to you and I have a message that I want you to give my people I have a mission I want you to accomplish as we continue to go through Revelation we're going to see a lot of similarities between the things that John goes through as a messenger to God's people in the first century compared to what the prophets went through in the Old Testament one of them is John's going to eat a book the book is going to be bitter and sweet. Does that remind you of anything? That's Isaiah also. <laughs> so you're going to see a lot of these things. This is why we said earlier that having a good background of Old Testament 
can help you really appreciate and see things even clearer of what's going on here in Revelation. And so, if you haven't read those chapters yet, go home today, read Ezekiel 1, read Isaiah 6, 1 Kings 22. Look at that stuff. You're going to see a lot of similarities, and it'll help you appreciate more of what's going on. This is not the first time God has done this kind of stuff we're seeing with John, okay? Another thing I think is good to have some background on is God's constant deliverance of his people throughout Bible history. I mean, that's one of the things we see over and over again. And it goes back to what you were saying about, I'm a God of judgment. God is a God of judgment. God constantly judges the nations that oppress his people. He does it sooner or later all the time. And he is not partial. He shows no partiality with that. Even the Jews were punished by God when they rebelled against him. He would use the Babylonians to punish them. He would use the Assyrians to punish them. So God is a God of judgment and a God of deliverance. And the, in, the, in the Bible history, we find God delivering Israel from Egyptian bondage. Right now in Revelation, we find God's people being oppressed. They're being oppressed. And they may not be in slavery like Israel in the Old Testament, but they're still being oppressed. And in the Old Testament with Israel, they were being oppressed also by the Egyptians. But God delivered them. And God's going to deliver his people now also. The Assyrian judgment. The Jews in the time of Esther. Remember, God used Esther to keep the Jews from experiencing genocide by the hands of Haman. That's something else to be, to be remind, uh, mindful of. The restoration of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. All throughout the Bible, we find God being with his people, delivering his people, bringing judgment on their enemies. That is revelation. That's revelation. God's people are being oppressed. God's people are, 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 are being severely persecuted by a, a, a harsh, cruel, strong enemy. And just like God brought the Egyptians down and the Assyrians down and the Babylonians down, all these different people, Haman and the time of Esther, God's going to bring this new enemy down also. So just, just be mindful of that. Be mindful of these deliverance stories that are found throughout the Bible. This is nothing, this is nothing new. And so let's keep going here. One of the things I want you to remember is God has always helped his people in times of distress. He always does it. And he'll do it here in Revelation. He'll do it today. God's not just sitting on his throne doing nothing right now. Is that what we think? God's doing nothing? No, God's not just sitting around doing nothing. God's fully aware, and God is still in the business of delivering his people providentially. We might not be living in a time where miracles are being done, but that doesn't mean we're not living in a time where God's not working. God is still listening to prayers. God is still answering prayers. God is still watching over his people and guiding his people and working in their lives providentially. That still takes place. That's always going to take place. That's something to be mindful of, okay? All right, so let's break down the chapter a little bit. If we don't get done all the way, that's okay. We'll, we'll finish it up on Wednesday and start Revelation 5. Okay, let's start with the doors. Brother Mitch said some things about the doors, and I think that was a critical point. There were two doors mentioned in the, in the, in the lessons that Mitch taught us. There was a door in the case of the Philadelphia church and a door in the case of the Laodiceans. 
Now, when, the, when it came to the door, the image of the door in Philadelphia, how's the door portrayed? It's, it's open. It's an open door. Jesus was dining with them. He was in fellowship with them. He, they had let him in. We studied that. What about the Laodiceans? How is the door portrayed when Jesus speaks to them? Because he also talks about a door. And what was he doing with the door? He's knocking on the door. So with Philadelphia, there's the open door where Jesus comes in. He dines with his people. They're serving him faithfully. And then with the Laodiceans, it's the closed door. Okay? And he's outside, he's outside knocking. They won't let him in. Now, there's a third door mentioned in Revelation. It's the door mentioned in Revelation 4 and verse number 1. How is the door described there in Revelation 4 and verse 1? Got another open door. It's an open door. And the open door represents what? What does the open door represent here? Access to the throne of God. Access into heaven. You know, this reminds me of Paul a little bit when he was caught up into the third heaven. You know, Paul was able to see into paradise there. Uh, he was given that great privilege. Well, John's given a great privilege here to be able to go where the very throne of God is, the open door there. John is able to see what's going to take place after these things. Because a voice says, come up here and I will tell you what's going to happen after these things. After what things contextually? After what things? Well, we just studied. Remember, no chapter breaks. And when this was, the chapter breaks throw us off so often. As a preacher, I've never met a chapter break I liked, okay? <laughs> I don't like chapter breaks because I think they throw us off too much. But uh, here, it's, it, you got to remember that it's all in one scroll originally, and Jesus just addressed these churches, and the, the voice says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen after these things. After everything you've heard so far, now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen after. So Jesus tried to straighten out these churches because something great is coming. So here's some more questions here. These things will take place when? Going back to the guideline, the guideposts. These things that John is about to be told, they're going to take place when? The language that repeats itself throughout the book. Shortly. These will shortly come to pass. The book begins with that language. The book ends with that language. Where was John when he was able, when he was, uh, where was John able to come? Verse 1, where was he able to go? Look at what the text says. A door opened, the voice I heard, the, I heard the, like the sound of a trumpet speak with me saying, come where? He's going up. Come up here. Come up here. So that's where he's going. How is he able to get there? Is he getting there with his physical body? The text says he's in the spirit. What do you think that means? He's in the spirit. What does that mean? What do y'all, somebody give me a thought on that. What do you think John, what the Bible means when it says John was, he says, I was in the spirit. Because this is not the only time we find this language. Look over at Revelation. Uh, you go back to chapter 1 and verse 10. Chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? That's today. That's Sunday. It's the Lord's day. And he says, I was in the spirit. So what does that mean that he's in the spirit? What do y'all think about that? I, 
I think this is some vision of some kind. I don't think his physical body's going in. I think, I think it's, this is probably some vision he's had, but this is not John as a man, you know what I'm saying, going in like that. He's in the spirit. That's how he's able, and you're right, that's a great verse. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When we go to heaven, guess what? We're not going like this. The Bible says we're going to be changed. We're going to be changed from the physical to the spiritual. We're going to be given a body that is suitable for a spiritual place. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15. Brother Lance, yes, sir. We have a good example of precedence of Jesus on the mount transfigured. We have Moses. I mean, so we have, we have a situation where one, where he's physical, we go to spiritual, and then he comes back to physical again. But we know he's not in his prison cell. Absolutely. No, that, that's exactly right. We, we know this is a, he's in a, in a spiritual sense. And he's... He's either, and I, my view is he's seen a vision of some kind, but the point is it ain't phys, it's not physical. Absolutely. Did somebody else have their hand up? Brother Rick, yes, sir. Even though in the spirit here, he's still got all of the bodily senses. Yes, the consciousness. No, that, that, that's a good point. Uh, I'm glad you made that point. Rick was saying that even though he's in the spirit, he still has his consciousness, his thoughts, his memory, all the things that he would have had as a man on the earth. Uh, absolutely. So John is able to see God on the throne in all his glory. It seems that the saved, those who have overcome, were reigning with God. This is God letting his people know that they are going to win. Yes. But Paul also has a, what he thinks is a very similar situation. And he even has a hard time describing what happened to him. And it actually happened to him. So for us to describe it, we just got to kind of refer to it was so, you're talking about Paul when he talked about when he was caught up into the third heaven. And he goes, I don't know if I was, right? Well, he said he, they were speaking words that no man's able to speak, that he heard them say. And he also makes the point, Paul says, he, it's so dramatic for him that he starts talking about himself in the third person. Because he, he, he's just so humbled by it. He can't even talk in the first person, even though I do think he's clearly talking about himself there. Brother Don, yes, sir. No, and he saw all of those things in the spirit. In the spirit. And Jesus also, I think you find the same thing when he was able to see all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, Luke says, I think that also was a miraculous vision. So I think we got miracles going on here. That's the point I'm making. So good, good thoughts. Okay, so let's see how far we can get with some of this, and we'll go from there. Okay, can you imagine, can you imagine seeing God on his throne? Like this. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I can't even begin to fathom it. I can't even begin to fathom seeing God on his throne. Seeing this kind of, of picture. Notice how no actual form of God is, is, no actual form is ascribed to God as he sits on the throne. No actual form. Instead, you have these different these, these different precious things that are assigned to him. What did you notice there? Jasper. That's also something that was part of the foundation of the New Jerusalem. Do y'all remember that? The Jasper? 
So you got Jasper. What else do you find there? A rainbow around the throne. What do you remember the rainbow from in the Bible? Let's know. What did a rainbow represent? Not what our society is saying today, is it? We got straight hijacked on that. The rainbow, according to the Bible, represents what? It is a reminder that God will never again destroy all flesh with a flood. Right? Then you got emerald and sardis. All these different precious things that, at least in my view, are just to portray the glory and the, and the power and the majesty of God. I mean, how do you describe God in, in a spiritual a spiritual being like God to fleshly people like us. How do you do that? How can you do that? I guess you do it the best you can with stuff like this, right? Stuff that we, we view as precious. Let me say one more thing real quick. Around the throne are what? 24 what else? 24 what? 24 elders sitting on. I'm going to tell you what I think about that. You can chew me out later, okay? The number 12, the number 12 in apocalyptic literature usually represents what? Completeness, fullness, right? 24 divided by 2 is 12. In my view, I think this 24, the 24 elders around the throne represent the totality of God's people. I think it represents God's people from the old covenant and God's people under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, how many tribes made up God's people? Twelve. Under the new covenant, how many special ambassadors did Jesus have follow him in his ministry? Twelve. So the number twelve is important in the Bible. I think twelve tribes, twelve apostles, when you put it together, you have twenty-four. I think these twenty-four elders represent the faithful, God's people around the throne. Where we're going to be one day, around the throne with God. We're going to be part of the saved from the new covenant, but we'll still be there with Moses and Noah and Abraham, God's people from the old covenant. I just think the number 24 here is designed to represent the totality, the totality of God's people. That's just my view on that. Um, I want to stop there. I don't want to get too far. I'm, I'm going to get to this line and this calf and this face of a man and a flying eagle. For next time, can you tell me what you think that stuff represents? The lion, the calf, the face of a man and a flying eagle. Eagle, that's some scary stuff there. But it's in heaven, so we're going to talk about it. Did anybody else have a thought maybe about the 24 thing? What do y'all think about that? Am I totally crazy for saying that? Or does that make kind of sense? I hope you think that makes a little sense. So we'll stop there. We'll finish up chapter 4 and start chapter 5 on Wednesday. Thank you so much for your comments. I appreciate it.